beyond politics and above religion, a moral authority exists known globally as the ageless wisdom. It's the study of consciousness, the mystery of awareness, which cannot be measured, yet will not be denied. This podcast from Michael Benner's Wisdom of the Soul class features weekly lessons in metaphysics, mysticism, and esoteric philosophy. Those who attend live and free of charge on Zoom may also participate in group meditation and Q&A. Register for our newsletter at michaelbenner.com. Welcome to the Ageless Wisdom Mystery School with Michael Benner. Welcome to Wisdom of the Soul. This is a class that's sponsored by Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. So I really appreciate you being here live any Sunday morning at 11 a.m. Pacific that you're able to do that. Be part of the group mind and uh, the group meditation, which we'll do in just a moment. If you wish to listen to the recording, search Ageless Wisdom Mystery School. Whether you're looking for uh, a website or podcast or a YouTube channel, Ageless Wisdom Mystery School, and the class is Wisdom of the Soul. Uh, Appreciate it on YouTube. If you subscribe, we're Stretching for 500 subscribers, at which point YouTube will help promote us and it raises us in keyword searches. I think we're at about 400 now. So too with the podcast. If uh, you listen on Apple Podcasts or uh, a player app called Podchaser, uh, both of those encourage reviews and ratings and that helps us too. Uh, I don't think very many people realize that. If you review my book on Amazon, that also raises us in keyword searches and helps other people find this material. So it's a great way to support us. And as we mentioned last week, if you can just, uh, uh, and a couple did, I I noticed that. Thank you very much for that. Just on your uh, Twitter feed, your Instagram, your Facebook, just post, you know, here's a class that I really like and I'm benefiting from it. And there's a meditation and Q&A and, you know, listen to the podcast or the YouTube channel or join us live on Sunday. It's all free. Imagine it's all free. And uh, today we're going to talk about the art and science of deep relaxation. Sometimes I call it profound relaxation, for it is deep and it is profound. And, of course, the benefits of relaxation are that it's essentially an antidote to the problems that accumulate as a result of stress and anxiety. So the first step toward managing stress tension, pressure, anxiety, and uh, every aspect of fear from panic and horror and phobias all the way out to mild nervousness and apprehension, a little or a lot. Just that feeling that something unfortunate is about to happen, the shoe is going to drop at any minute, 
That's evidence of a high level of anxiety. Also, a short attention span, as I mentioned in the newsletter this week, um, because of their exposure to phones and tablets and computers, younger people are suffering from what's often called ADD or ADHD, attention deficit. It's just difficult for them to focus or to concentrate. And that's compounded by the fact that many people think concentration is an effort. There's very little understanding, generally speaking, that concentration is a relaxation skill. You may learn that in sports psychology, or maybe you're an actor, a performer of some sort, a singer, a dancer, and you learn the importance of relaxation in releasing performance anxiety. Students who have test anxiety should understand the importance of breathing and relaxing as an antidote, as a cure to the routine anxiety that accumulates in a society such as the one we've created, just frenetic, mad, chaotic, way too fast, uh, maybe we'll evolve to the point that we can manage this. However, I think as we evolve, we're going to look for a slower pace and more solitude because as we'll discuss today, the benefits of stress go way beyond improving your physical health. Usually people think of stress management as a way to boost the immune system and avoid illness, but it shatters awareness mentally. Stress makes us stupid. We make mistakes, we overlook opportunities, we behave reflexively, uh, often without any thought or consideration as to the consequences. And emotionally, stress just hurts. Um, it's a bit of a paradox to recognize that the numbness that comes from being overly stressed hurts. Isn't that odd that to feel numb is to experience a, a vague heartache or sadness. And of course, the association of depression with anxiety is well studied and well known. So the antidote is deep relaxation. That's what we're going to talk about today as an art and as a science. And we'll talk about a little bit more about what happens when we don't meditate how easily you can learn to meditate. It's <laughs> People often make it way too hard. And then, of course, the benefits that accrue when we uh, practice meditation on a regular basis. So with that, let's do it. Let's do an opening meditation, and then we'll, uh, at the conclusion of the meditation, talk more about what we just did and why it's good to incorporate it into our lives. This is part of personal and spiritual development. Personal, intrapersonal, interpersonal, and transpersonal. Uh, 
transpersonal psychology, transpersonal development is just another way of talking about spiritual unfoldment or moving toward enlightenment. So get comfortable in your chairs. Most of us sit, we're Westerners, we sit in straight back chairs, even if you're in a nice, comfortable sofa or easy chair. No problem at all. Sit up straight. The idea is not to be rigid, but relaxed. So find that position. Relax your shoulders. Moving toward that wide awake state and then open your eyes now. Wide awake and alert back in the room. Feeling fine, feeling better than before bringing with you <laughs> a sense of peace, relaxation, and a little bit of joy, a little bit of happiness. Take a nice big breath to finish it off with a big breath, uh, letting go and maybe a stretch, uh, like when you wake up. And welcome back, wide awake, better than before. I wonder how many of you have uh, heard of or are familiar with John Lilly. Does that name ring a bell for you, John Lilly? He passed away probably 10 or 12 years ago. He was a dolphin researcher, among other things, and uh, was fascinated by the fact that dolphins are one of only a handful of animals that we know of that are self-aware. In other words, they can reflect on their thinking and think about their thinking, turn their attention to their feelings. Yes, animals do have emotions. And the ultimate test that science has settled on for self-awareness is recognizing your image in a mirror knowing that it's you. <laughs> I saw a video not long ago of some scientists that were doing this test in the wilderness, and they set up this big mirror, and uh, the piece of the video that they had uh, released was this big black bear uh, coming around the corner, <laughs> not recognizing that it's a mirror from the back, and... Uh, coming around the side of the mirror and seeing its reflection out of the corner of its eye, right? Its peripheral vision. And then it turns its head and sees itself in the mirror and almost jumps out of its skin. I mean, literally. <laughs> I never saw a bear jump before. It literally jumped a foot off the ground and then charged at the mirror. The bear clearly did not recognize itself in the mirror. It saw something in the mirror, it saw another bear. Your dogs and cats may look at a mirror. They may watch TV. I know mine do. Especially if they're interested, if my cats see birds on TV or other cats, especially other cats, they, uh, they'll watch it. But we also have a full-length mirror they sit in front of and they look at it, but they don't really know that that's their reflection. 
they can't comprehend that. There's only a half a dozen. Well, I think, I think we're up to 10, actually. And some of them you might expect. A killer whale, the orca. Apparently not gray whales or blue whales or humpbacks. But the orcas recognize their reflection in a mirror. Dolphins. Gorillas. Bonobos, a kind of a chimpanzee. Elephants. Yeah, elephants are really smart. And then the ones that are most unexpected, I think, include ants. That's surprising to me, anyway, because they have, their brains are so small. An elephant, you might say, well, or a whale. Well, they have big brains, of course, and they're millions of years old. They're much older than human beings. So, But an ant is self-aware. An ant recognizes its, uh, its image in a mirror, yeah. And uh, a magpie. Well, crow, they're incredibly smart. And they, when they look in a mirror, they recognize themselves. That's self-awareness. That's that's the scientific definition of self-awareness. And most human babies are not able to do that until about 18 months old. So a baby younger than 18 months, put them in front of a mirror, they, well, they would. For the first few months, the baby can't even focus. It just sees shadows and vague shapes. And then the eyeballs begin to, the eye muscles begin to strengthen and they learn to focus. But still are not self-aware enough. The brain's still developing. Human brain develops until you're about 19 or 20 years old. That's why teenagers do so many stupid things that are so unconscious. We're just still becoming self-aware. So what does it mean to be self-aware beyond recognizing your image in a mirror? It means to begin to not only think, but to observe your thoughts, to be aware that you have choices, that you can consider that there are thoughts you haven't thought, that there are options, alternatives, answers that maybe are not apparent to you that you could reflect upon you hear that word reflect upon and consider you could anticipate the consequences of your behavior as you become more self-aware something we often do not do we just say something before we realize the impact that it has or we do something rash without considering the consequences so we're more or less self-aware. It also includes understanding your emotions from a non-thinking place. Most of us think about our emotions, but don't get very far. Have you ever noticed that thinking about how you feel doesn't really yield much in the way of understanding? So what else do you do? Well, you feel the feeling and sit there quietly and let your intuition speak to you, that still small voice. 
Maybe you suddenly find yourself remembering another time that you felt like this. And then maybe a third time or a fourth time. And then you begin to recognize a pattern in these feelings, what they're associated with, what they symbolize or represent. But thinking about it, that's not really the process, you see. it's Thinking is deductive. It's uh, a rational, analytical thought process is general to specific. That's what we mean by deductive thought. You know, Sherlock Holmes. Well, it's not this, and it couldn't be that. And this is not a possibility because of this. And you break it down general to specific. Well, that's fine if you start with what you know. But what if you have a bunch of specific details and you want to induce an overarching concept, a connection? What? I see the pearls, but I don't see the necklace. Where is the string? that unifies all these separate things, what do they have in common? Nobody ever taught you to do that. It's not in school. Inductive, they might call it creative thought, (laughs) but uh, inductive logic is usually limited to if-then statements. We get very confused. Last year we talked about inductive and deductive logic and the difference between every crow I've ever seen is black, therefore all crows must be black. But that does not mean all black birds are crows. So we get easily confused around logic and analysis. But that's all we've got. And when it comes to understanding your feelings, There is enormous benefit in using meditation, deep relaxation, to develop your self-awareness in this way. See, this is my argument. The primary benefit of meditation, of deep relaxation, profound relaxation, the profundity in it, is that it expands self-awareness. The reason I mentioned John Lilly and the dolphin research is it led him in time to study sensory deprivation. Now, I'm sure many of you know about these samadhi tanks or flotation tanks, sensory deprivation tanks. And when scientists first began to study 30 years ago, 40 years ago, What happens when people are deprived of sensory input? They anticipated that people would fall asleep. In fact, people did not fall asleep when they were deprived of sensory input. Their awareness expanded. They began to dream, to get visual imagery that initially was called hallucination except the imagery was so valuable, so full of information, insight, understanding, these epiphanies and revelations, lid lifting, oh my God, you know what I realized? Sitting in that sensory deprivation, or floating in that sensory deprivation tank. So they started with like these soundproof closets, 
and eye masks, and they developed into the flotation tank, where this like large coffin-shaped tank would be filled with water that was saturated with salt to the point that it just could not hold any more salt. That made the water buoyant, so you floated high in the water and with a little bit of relaxation, just the slightest relaxation, found yourself able to float easily. But it's also dark in there. Somewhere between 60 and 80% of what's going on in the brain is visual, so you just close your eyes or, more to the point, get in this deep, deep, dark, completely devoid of light, flotation tank, which is also soundproof and blocked off from any fragrance or there's nothing to taste. And the water is heated to body temperature, so not only are you supported by the water floating high in the water, but pretty soon, within minutes, you don't even feel the water. You can't feel where your body ends and the water begins because the water is heated up to body temperature, do you see? All of your senses and sensations are receiving virtually no stimulus at all, and awareness explodes. It's like, off the chart, smart. A little rhyme, do-da, do-da. I never heard myself say that. Off the chart, smart. <laughs> And these are still around. I know uh, for those of you in Southern California, there's a big center in Pasadena. There used to be some in uh, uh, the west side of town, but I haven't lived in Los Angeles in quite a while. So you might have to look around or whatever city you're listening to me in, you may want to check and see if there are samadhi tanks, sensory deprivation tanks, flotation tanks. Or you can rent an hour. I think it's probably 40 to $60 and an hour or something like that. But it's life-changing. And you may say, well, you know, I don't swim in community pools. I, I, I don't <laughs> want to get into a, a tank of water that somebody else has been in. But... Uh, all of these places are set up with showers. You're required to shower and, and soak down before you get into the tank. And uh, this is not a, you don't need to strip down. You can wear a bathing suit. But you're alone in there as an attendant if you need one up front. But usually you're alone. You go into this room, you shower. And you jump into the tank, and they change the water regularly. But you come out of there changed. And it's the same brainwave state that we seek with meditation. And we also did a class on this last year, the uh, correlation of brainwaves to relaxation and deep relaxation. Beta, which is like 14 cycles to 40 cycles. That's where we're wide awake, where we live our lives. Most of us in mid to high 30s. 
And the more stimulated you are, the more stressed you are, the higher the brainwave frequency. You can see it in people. They they fidget. People fidget. They Again, their attention span is short. Attention span in American young people, I started to say a few minutes ago, it's now down to about 10 minutes. Kids have a hard time even watching a movie. Uh, the wiring in the brain, as I say, is such that they just lack the ability to have that attention deficit disorder. People don't seem to recognize even the medical establishment that while there may be such a thing as ADD or ADHD, this hyperactivity and attention deficit is quite often the result of nothing but stress and anxiety. And so if your brain thinks that it's always in danger, there's all this stimulus going on, and most of it unknown, what's, what's going to happen next, you're in constant fight or flight. And again, my argument is not only does that weaken the immune system, illness is called dis-ease for a reason. Not only are you more likely to get sick and develop horrible illness and disease as a result of stress. I mean, even cancer, heart disease, diabetes, all kinds of horrible things. Not to mention the common cold or the flu or just feeling tired or depressed. All of this is stress-related. We're overstimulated. We're burning out. So Lily's research with dolphins and the self-awareness of just a handful of animals that I've mentioned here led to his research with the sensory deprivation and the expanded awareness that came out of that. It just duplicates meditation. So that when you close your eyes, it's not pitch black like it is in the sensory deprivation tank, but it's black enough, it's dark enough. You've reduced radically visual stimulus. And uh, in the same way, as you sit quietly and don't move and then put your attention on deep relaxation, I'm not sure how many of you have noticed, but I always, as part of the induction at the beginning of any meditation, go through this whole physical relaxation thing. A lot of meditation teachers don't do that. They just have you close your eyes and begin to meditate. Well, the relaxation will accrue, but I think it's important to be aware of deliberately, purposefully, create a letting go feeling in your body and sense that letting go feeling in your body, muscles softening, relaxing, blood veins dilating. You know the drill. We've gone through it enough here. And then the amygdala lets go. The fight or flight center in the brain goes, oh, we're safe. Eyes are closed. Couldn't be that much danger. Slow, deep breathing. Well, that, that doesn't look like danger. A letting go of muscular tension? My God, this self of mine must be safe enough that we can relax and turn down the adrenaline. We don't need all this adrenaline and we don't need all this cortisol and things normalize and the healing commences. 
But moreover, awareness expands. Are you hearing me clearly? Awareness of your thoughts. You're not just the thinker. You're the awareness of your ability to think. And you're not just emotionally driven or a victim of emotions that other people caused you to feel. You become aware of being aware. And your behavior, your speech, and your actions are less likely to be reflexive and more likely to be well-considered and then deliberately initiated (laughs) such that we're less likely to say regrettable things or suffer the resentment of speaking too quickly and then realizing we've made a fool of ourselves or we hurt someone's feelings or we hadn't really considered the impact on other people. Oops. In Buddhist philosophy, there are five aggregates. The five aggregates are basically, if you you study Buddhism, it's said differently than I'm going to say it, but I'm going to say it in a very simple, direct way that carries essentially the same meaning. The five aggregates are awareness of your thinking, not just the ability to think, but to be aware of it. Awareness of your emotions, same thing, not just to feel the emotion, but to be non-attached, to take one step back or slightly rise above and say, Michael's feeling funky today, he's sort of sad, he's sort of depressed, or boy, this conversation I'm having is starting to really upset me. I I can feel anger coming on. I'm not angry yet. I'm not acting angry, but I can I can feel it coming on. That's much more aware than suddenly finding yourself yelling and throwing stuff and threatening people. Thirdly, awareness of your speech and your physical actions and your body's health, the physical, so mental, emotional, physical, awareness in each of those three. The fourth aggregate is the world around you, your relationships, your perception of figure and form and the world, circumstance and situation. Being increasingly aware of your relationship with the world around you. And the fifth aggregate is to be aware of awareness itself. (laughs) This I love, the idea that not only am I increasingly self-aware as a result of practicing meditation, increasingly intelligent, self-aware, even approaching wisdom, which is an understanding of what you do not know. Wisdom is not all this knowledge and understanding. It's all this knowledge and understanding leading you to an awareness of what you do not know. That's wisdom, at least in the Socratic sense. But to be aware of being aware. And another way to say this, which I'd like you to make a mental note of, this is worthy of remembering, is to notice what I notice. Wouldn't it be nice 
to remind yourself throughout the day to take a breath, to relax. And even if you don't have 10 or 15 minutes to meditate, just take 30 seconds to detach, to let go of your busy, 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 and notice what you're noticing. And notice that you are the one who notices, which is very different from just doing and doing and doing. To notice what we notice is to be aware of being aware. And that's a step toward enlightenment. The next step is to be the awareness itself. So we go from the thinker who has feelings and speaks and behaves reflexively to noticing what we notice, to being aware of being aware. Be aware of your thoughts, your feelings, your speech and behavior, the world around you, and aware of awareness itself. These are not really five separate things. They're five aspects of one thing, capital A, awareness, which is your identity. That's the truth of who you are. It's consciousness. It's the one thing that's missing from organized religion. Religion busies itself with belief systems and, to a large extent, morality and redeeming sin and temptation and Christ died and washed away all the sins if you but accept him and every religion has its own take. When have you ever heard a religious person talking about consciousness? except perhaps in Eastern philosophies, but they are philosophies. And they're not even one religion, even Christianity. I Googled it once. How many, uh, how many domination, not domination, what's the word I want? Non-denominational, denominational. How many of them are there? <laughs> how, many, how many types of Christianity are there? Google told me 43,000. Take your pick, Presbyterian, Pentecostal, Lutheran, Methodist, all the Protestants, the Protestants, the Protestants, the Catholics, and then the non-denominational churches and the Church of the Holy This and the Church of the... A, A different take, a different angle on what's supposed to be the teachings of Christ. Is awareness discussed in organized religion? Is consciousness part of organized religion? What is Christ consciousness? Maybe you found a church that talks about Christ consciousness. Maybe you found a temple that talks about the consciousness of Moses. Maybe you found a Muslim uh, Mosque, that's the word I was looking for. Where they talk about the consciousness of Muhammad. Buddhism is really not a religion, though some people practice it as if it were. But you'll hear a lot about consciousness in Buddhism and to a large extent, many forms of Hinduism, which again is thousands and thousands of variations on Brahmanism. And then we have the Taoism of the Chinese and Sikhism and Jainism and 
breaking it down many different flavors and forms and variations. But you have to be conscious or aware of the nature of consciousness or awareness. <laughs> 